Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Subscribe to Inclusion Revolution Radio, wherever you can get podcasts. Progressive presents Forced Metaphors, about bundling your home auto and other vehicles. In hockey, it's the goalie's job to protect the net. And in life, your net is your home and auto, but also your boat, motorcycle, RV, or ATV. And your goalie is the round-the-clock protection offered by Progressive Insurance. Well, and also the savings you get when you bundle. So in this metaphor, you have two goalies, which is okay because, you know, it's just a metaphor. Forced Metaphors, presented by Progressive. Bundle and protect today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discount not available in all states or situations. Welcome into Stacking the Box. I am Matt Verderam, and we have a great show for you today. We'll talk about which teams could break through and reach the playoffs this season, including one who I like to win its division. We'll also speak with Marcus Moser about the NFC East and fan-sided's Peter Panassi getting his thoughts on the rebuild going on in San Francisco. And finally, we'll go in-depth on the three players currently on the franchise tag, including Kirk Cousins and Le'Veon Bell. But let's start this week off with three teams who I believe are going to see significant strides this year. And we start with Tampa Bay. The Buccaneers finished 9-7 and seven last season, were in the playoff race right up until the end, didn't work out. But the Buccaneers, if you really look at the last couple of years, they've been improving steadily. 2-14 and 14 to 6-10 and 10 last year, getting to that nine-win mark, first winning season in a few years. Dirk Cutter, his first year as head coach, did a really nice job. And so there's some real hope right now for Tampa Bay, and it all starts with Jameis Winston. You know, Third-year quarterback, 23 years old, and he has incredible talent. He was the first overall pick in the draft back in 2015. But he's got to be a little bit more consistent. Last year, his yards per attempt actually went down from 7.56 down to 7.21, and his interceptions went up from 15 to 18. You don't like to see that first to second season. You want to see some improvement. The yardage was almost exactly the same. He finished 12th in the NFL, which is good, a little over 4,000 yards, but his completion percentage was only 60.8. That ranked 23rd in the league. He's got to do better, especially on an offense that really revolves around him. This is not a ground-and-pound attack. The Buccaneers, when Doug Martin is there and he's healthy, they can run the ball a little bit. But Tampa Bay wants to throw the ball and be vertical. And so while the completion percentage may not be great because he's not going to be throwing a ton of bubble screens and quick outs, you do want to see somewhere in the neighborhood of 64%, maybe climbing towards 65 And I think you might see that this year out of Winston, which is why I'm excited about Tampa Bay. O.J. Howard, tight end out of Alabama, everybody thought was going to be a top 10 pick, slides into the late teens, and the Buccaneers nab him. Howard's a guy who should be able to come in and contribute immediately to what Tampa Bay wants to do. And he's playing alongside a very good young tight end in Cameron Brait. So I expect to see a lot of two tight end sets for Tampa, which should give him a little bit more balance. Nobody talks about Brait. And while he's not on that Gronkowski Jordan Reed, Travis Kelsey level. He had 660 yards last season in his third year out of Harvard. 
that's not bad. That's somebody who can certainly be a factor in the passing game. That being said, I think he fits in as a real good number two. Maybe he's an average number one. So the Buccaneers got better there, and they really got better by adding Deshaun Jackson in free agency. He is a perfect fit for the vertical, down-the-field scheme that the Buccaneers employ. He has that elite speed, and he's also going to keep secondaries from getting all over Mike Evans with double teams. Evans is one of the best players in football. He doesn't get talked about as much as Antonio Brown and Odell Beckham Jr. because his teams haven't been to the playoffs yet. He plays in a smaller market. But Evans is a phenomenal talent. Big-bodied, go up and get the ball, runs crisp routes. Last year at over 1,300 yards and 12 touchdowns. That is an all-pro level player. And now with Deshaun Jackson coming in, Adam Humphreys working the slots, the two tight ends we've already talked about. If Winston can take that next step and throw for maybe a couple hundred more yards, but really hone in on the completion percentage, cut down the interceptions from 18 to somewhere around a dozen or so, Tampa Bay is poised to be very good in what is suddenly a fairly competitive NFC South. Of course, already the Falcons are defending NFC champs. Carolina trying to bounce back after going 6-10 and 10 last year. Of course, 15-1 and one the year prior. And New Orleans, always a tough out because of that offense and because of such a good head coach in Sean Payton. But the key for the Buccaneers beyond Winston is to see that defense continue to improve and get better. Last year in the first half of the season, the Buccaneers had one of the worst defenses in football, allowed 29 points per game. The second half of the year, the Buccaneers only allowed 17 points per game, including wins over Seattle and Kansas City, a couple of playoff-bound teams. If the Buccaneers were able to sustain that second half for the entire year, it would have been second in the NFL last year only to New England. So that gives you an idea. Hi, I'm Flo from Progressive. You know me. I'm a huge football fan. But it can be stressful for us super fans. So Progressive is going to help take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how your team threw the wrong ball on the wrong net, just think about how Home Court Explorer lets you easily compare our direct rates with multiple companies. Well, hope this distraction about Progressive's Home Court Explorer was helpful. It sure helped me from stressing about my team for a bit. Anyway, go sports! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Of why Tampa Bay decided to try to upgrade the offense and really did not do a whole heck of a lot to the defense. They see coordinator Mike Smith, of course, former head coach of the Falcons, doing a really nice job with the defense, which has real building blocks. Levante David, of course, in the middle, Gerald McCoy. Those are two of the better young defensive players in the NFL. And a guy like Noah Spence, you expect him to only get better. Vernon Hargraves in the secondary. They added J.J. Wilcox. The Buccaneers have a very good young defense. The question is, can Winston take that next step? I believe he can. And if he does, the Buccaneers should be in the playoffs come January. Another team in the AFC this time that I really think is going to be, I don't know much better record-wise, but much better in terms of just overall level of play, and that's the Tennessee Titans. You know, last year, they made a six-game jump from 3-13 and to 9-7. and Now, I don't expect a two- or three-game jump this year, but I could see the, the Titans getting to 10-6. and six. They lost the AFC South via tiebreaker last season. I expect the, the Titans to win the AFC South, and I'll tell you why give you a few good reasons. The offseason, 
excellent. General Manager John Robinson did a really nice job. He added Eric Decker. He added Logan Ryan in free agency. And he had two first-round picks brought in USC corner Dory Jackson and Corey Davis, wide receiver out of Western Michigan, with the fifth overall pick. That offense has a chance to be top 10. You've got Davis. You've got Decker on the outside. We already know what DeMarco Murray and Derrick Henry bring to the table. And there's not a better combination of tackles in the NFL anywhere than in Tennessee. Jack Conklin was an all-pro as a rookie. Taylor Lewan, one of the better left tackles in the game. Tennessee can do anything it wants up front, and it doesn't have to chip and help nearly as much as a lot of other teams. It also plays in a division that unless it's playing the Texans, it's not going to have to worry all that much about the pass rush. Yes, Jacksonville did some nice things defensively in the offseason as well. Clayus Campbell coming in, A.J. Boye coming in, bringing him over from Houston. But the Jags have to prove it on both sides of the ball. The defense should be better, but again, Tennessee should be able to handle Jacksonville's front. Houston, Whitney Merciless, J.J. Watt, uh, Jadavian Clowney, that's another animal. But if there's any team in the AFC that can block it, it's the Titans. And while so many times we overlook the offensive lines because it's not sexy, it's not exciting, the Titans, that's where they begin. And it's a great place to begin because the most successful teams in the league over the course of its history, they're really good in the trenches. So I think the Titans, as long as that secondary can hold up, are going to be a playoff team. And the secondary was addressed nicely in the offseason. We already talked about Logan Ryan. He came in via free agency from the New England Patriots. I don't believe he's a number one corner, but I think he's a real solid number two. And when you draft the corner in the top 20 picks, as they did with Adoree Jackson, they're expecting him to be the number one corner, at least eventually, if not right away. But the you see, the question becomes, how do they step into their roles? Who is number one right off the bat? Who takes that top assignment? The pass rush last year was not the problem in Tennessee, despite a lackluster defense. Had 40 sacks, and the run defense ranked second. So the front seven is very good, and Dick LeBeau certainly knows what he's doing on the defensive side of the ball, but those questions persist in the secondary. If that's answered in the affirmative. If the secondary can just be average, Tennessee has a real good chance to win the AFC South. And of course, everyone will talk about with Tennessee, Marcus Mariota, he's just got to make a little bit more of a leap. His numbers last year stayed pretty much the same across the board in terms of per game averages. Of course, he missed some time last year with the broken leg at the end of the season. He did see an increase in his touchdowns, went from 19 to 26. And he really... You'd like to see him start throwing for around 4,000 yards last year, around 3,400. If he can just get a little bit of an uptick in the passing game, which he should now with Davis and Decker coming in, the Titans are going to be one of the better teams in the AFC and should be able to make some noise deep into December and perhaps even into January. And finally, the third team that I expect to make a jump, although up front, I think there are more questions about this team than the other two, it's Los Angeles Chargers. The Chargers have been absolutely ravaged by injuries over the past two seasons. They've won a total of nine games, and a big reason for that is guys just haven't been on the field. Jason Verrett's one of the better corners in football when he's healthy, but he's been hurt. Keenan Allen missed a bunch of time in 2015 with the kidney injury. Last year comes back, looks incredible in the first half of week one against Marcus Peters at Arrowhead Stadium. 
and then unfortunately tears his ACL, misses the rest of the year. The Chargers have been bitten by the injury bug more than any other team in the NFL over the last two years. And so you've got to wonder if they can just stay healthy. But if they can, I was going to say San Diego, Los Angeles has a really good young core. And on offense, you look at guys like Allen and Hunter Henry and Melvin Gordon. Henry last year as a rookie tight end, sharing time with Antonio Gates, had 478 yards, but he had eight touchdowns. That's a guy who's developing into a really nice player in the NFL and I think is ready to take over the mantle for Gates. Gordon, he missed time at the end of the year with a knee injury and still rushed for 997 yards, 10 touchdowns, caught 41 passes for a little over 400 yards. He's a really nice back, not only give the ball 20 times to a game on the ground, but also as a safety valve. And you need that a little bit with Los Angeles because Phillip Rivers, as good as he is, he's not mobile. And that offensive line at times causes you to need a mobile quarterback. The Chargers have struggled at least over the last three or four years with pass blocking for Rivers. And I, I don't see that changing much this year. And that's one of the biggest questions I have about Los Angeles. You'll look at the tackle position. Russell Okung, he comes in. He was the big free agent acquisition for the Chargers. I don't like him at left tackle. He was bad last year with Denver. Denver let him walk, and Denver needs all the help it can get on the offensive line. So that should give you some idea of what's going on with that front. I don't know that the Chargers can protect well enough, and it's been a problem for Rivers, who's led the NFL interceptions two of the last three years, including last season. It hasn't stopped him from throwing for yardage. He's thrown for 4,000 yards in eight of the last nine seasons. But he's struggled with turning the ball over, and that's been something that's cost the Chargers in a lot of close games. But again, if, if the Chargers can just get healthy, this is a team with a bevy of weapons. Gates and Henry at tight end. Allen, Travis Benjamin, who was a disappointment last year coming over from the Browns in free agency. And then Mike Williams, top 10 pick. There are some real talented players in the defense, which was maligned for many years with the Chargers. Now, all of a sudden, very good. Los Angeles has Joey Bosa. He's one of the best young players in all of football, regardless of position. Melvin Ingram signed to a long-term deal this offseason. He's a solid pass rusher. Jason Verrett talked about him. Casey Hayward, that's a dynamite duo at corner. The safeties, something to be said for needing more talent there. But the Chargers defensively are going to be able to make some plays. Corey Leeds, it's one of the most underrated DNs in the NFL. There are not, there, there is no way to say that there aren't holes on the Chargers roster. There certainly are, and they play in a brutal division. The Chargers could go nine and seven and easily finish third, probably would finish third. And so I don't see the Chargers winning the division. Perhaps they sneak into the playoffs if things go right. But I expect Los Angeles to be much improved this season. And if they are, if the Chargers can just keep the players on the field that have missed so much time over the past two years, they will add to what is already the toughest division in football. And speaking of tough divisions, the NFC East will be one of the toughest once again this year. And to talk about that, we're going to bring in Marcus Mosier, who is a freelance writer for Bleacher Report, FanRag Sports, and soon-to-be fan-sided. Marcus, how are you? Doing well, Matt. How are you doing? Doing good. Now, you know, I want to get your opinion. I know you write a ton about the Dallas Cowboys for the different outlets that you that you work for. And, and I want to first get your thoughts on you know, last year, NFC East sent two teams to the playoffs, Washington right on the outside looking in. Of the four teams in the division, 
which did you feel had the best off season? Ooh, that's a tricky question. Well, it's definitely not Dallas. Dallas ended up losing a lot between two starters on the offensive line. They have some suspensions and some arrests that are happening in the last couple of weeks. But my guess would be the Philadelphia Eagles because I love their additions of Torrey Smith and Alshon Jeffrey. Last year, their biggest weakness was their receivers on the outside. And now I think they have two quality guys that can kind of help Wentz in his development. They didn't lose much on defense. They added a couple cornerbacks. I would go with the Eagles as the most improved team uh, in the division. I actually think they have they may be the favorite to win the division this year. Jamie's log, progressive. The Harrington's backyard, day twenty seven, three thirty three a.m. Three three three. All those threes mean something, or I may be losing it. Been camped in the Harrington's backyard for twenty seven days now, proving the progressive has twenty four seven protection. They told me every day they understand what twenty four seven protection means. Think I'm finally getting through to them. Three three three. Progressive doesn't just offer a great price when you bundle home and auto. We offer round-the-clock protection, just not literally from Jamie. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Now, I was going to get to the Eagles in a little bit, but let's go right off that. So they brought in Carson Wentz last year, traded up, traded a lot to get him, and, and he had his ups and downs. He started out incredibly and then tapered off a little bit. And you talked about Alshon Jeffrey coming in, Torrey Smith. He add, They add to Nelson Aguilar, who has been a little bit of a disappointment to this juncture. But you like the Eagles in this division. Are you concerned at all about the defense, or do you think that defense is good enough to maybe prop the offense up a little bit as Wentz continues to find his footing? I think the front seven is good enough. Uh, Fletcher Cox is one of the best defensive tackles we have in the league. Um, they've got Brandon Graham. They added Derek Barnett in the draft. I worry a little bit about their cornerbacks, but with that front seven – they love to blitz. They're going to get pressure on the quarterback. I think that they're. I think they have the most rounded defense in the NFC East. They have a better linebacker play than the Giants. Their front uh, four is very comparable. I, I just think that they have all the right tools to win uh, the NFC East this year. Yeah, Dallas, of course, last year really shocked people. Went thirteen and three, and and you know won the division. Was top seed in the NFC playoffs. But as you mentioned earlier, the defense took some real significant hits. I mean, just in free agency, we saw Brandon Carr leave, J.J. Wilcox, Morris Claiborne, so on and so forth, Barry Church. Yep. How much regression do you expect from a group that really under Rod Marinelli, I feel, overachieved last year? Yeah, I would agree that they overachieved. Um, the thing is, they, they've gotten younger. And anytime you get, you've gotten younger on a defense, there's always a chance to improve. But I think it's fair to assume that this team is going to take a big step back on defense. You know, they have the suspension of David Irving for the first four games. No Randy Gregory. They lost uh, Terrell McLean. They're starting one technique. It's going to be a transition on defense. I, I don't see them being in the top ten in points allowed like they were last year. They finished as the number one run defense in 2016. I think that'll uh, that'll come down more to the average in the NFL. It's going to be a struggle. I, I expect the Cowboys to start the season off slow on defense and gradually get better as the year goes on. But I don't think they're going to be nowhere near the same defense that we saw last year. Yeah, sticking with the Cowboys, we're going to the other side of the ball. Ezekiel Elliott had one of the best rookie seasons really of all time. And mm -hmm. some say he's a product of the offensive line, which is arguably the best group in football, probably really inarguably. They are the best offensive line. 
I don't tend to agree with the idea that he's a product. I think he's just a heck of a talent who happens to play behind a really good line. What are your thoughts on that subject? Well, initially, I was not the biggest Ezekiel Elliott fan coming out of the draft. I was actually campaigning for the Cowboys to take Derrick Henry. But, you know, and, I, and that kind of stuck with me throughout the entire year. I, you know, people were always kind of calling me out on that. But the more you watch Elliott, the more you realize he has no weaknesses in this game. There's not a single thing you can point out in Zeke's game and say this is where he needs to improve or this is what's holding him back from being an elite running back. We saw him thrive against stacked boxes all year long. We saw him against in different formations and different personnel groupings against any kind of defense. He had success. I think he is the best running back in the NFL, not the most um, – he doesn't get the same touches as Le'Veon Bell and David Johnson, but just as a pure runner, I think he is the best running back in the NFL. You know, the Redskins are facing a deadline on the Kirk Cousins situation. We're recording this on July 10th. It's a week from today. They're going to have to either give him a long-term deal or, again, second year here, go on the tag. He's already signed it, so he's not looking to hold out, but what should and will the Redskins do with Cousins, in your opinion? Well, what they will do is they'll probably keep tagging him and maybe look to get a long-term extension done next year. But I probably would just let him play out this year and then be done with it, just because I like Cousins. I think he's got a lot of ability, but I kind of think he keeps you in quarterback purgatory. He's not good enough to uh, be benched or anything like that, but he's not good enough to win you a Super Bowl. So if it was me... I would try to move him, try to send him to San Francisco or another team that wants him and start over. That's not what they'll do because quarterbacks are so hard to find in the NFL, and I suspect that they're going to try to get a long-term deal done in the next couple of days. Yeah, I just feel like if – and I don't necessarily disagree with you on your assessment of Kirk Cousins, but I feel like if he gets to the market, he's going to make a boatload of money. Teams he's going to be the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. If he gets to the market, I believe he will be the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. I agree. He really, you'd have to think that he would be the most sought after quarterback on the free agent market since Peyton Manning, which sounds Absolutely. crazy, but it's the truth. Uh, yeah. So moving on to the one team we haven't talked about yet in the NFC East, the New York Giants. I think the Giants, you look at the roster, they're loaded defensively. And I agree with what you said earlier. The linebackers are the one weak spot on that defense. But Steve Spagnuolo has done a really nice job with the group. However, offensively, that offensive line, the running back position, significant question marks. Do you think that those issues will sink the Giants, or do you think that the Giants have enough around those two groupings that they can get back into the playoffs? Well, I guess it depends on what you think sinking is, because I think they can end up somewhere between 8-8 eight and eight and 10-6, and six, despite their, you know, their problems on their offensive line. Eric Flowers is just a train wreck as a left tackle. But ultimately, they've got enough weapons between Odell, Brandon Marshall. I love it. Evan Ingram as their kind of slot tight end. Uh, Sterling Shepard, that they're going to be able to put up points. I just don't think when we get to the games that matter in December and January, that offensive line is going to be able to hold up against you know a Seattle or Atlanta type of defense. I think they'll be okay. Ultimately, I think that's going to be their Achilles heel from keeping them from being a Super Bowl contender. You know, I'll, I'll get you out of here on this. Last year, of course, Dallas, the Giants, both made the playoffs, both failed to win a game in the postseason. Of course, Dallas getting into the divisional round to buy and falling short against Green Bay. 
Do that you... just remind me of that. That's, that's okay. <laughs> it hurts every time somebody brings it up. Hey, you know what? Listen, I grew up as a Kansas City Chiefs fan, so believe me, I know all about pain in the playoffs. But sure. you know, I, I guess my question to you would be, do you think that the Giants and the Cowboys both get back to the postseason this year? You've already talked about your love of the Eagles and your expectations of them. Do you think New York and Dallas both get back? Does only one get back? Or do both miss the playoffs? That's a tricky question. I, my guess is that two NFC East teams make the playoffs. Um, I'm going to go with Philadelphia as a divisional winner, and I think the Cowboys have enough talent on offense to overcome their defensive issues. I, I'll, I'm going to guess that Dallas finishes somewhere between 9-7, and 10-6, and six, sneaks in as a wild card. Um, you know, the Giants are, are one of these teams that I think have a, you know, a high ceiling but low floor. It's really going to come back to – how much pressure can they get on the quarterback, and how much can they protect Eli? If they can keep Eli upright, they'll be okay. If not, this is a team that it wouldn't surprise me. They either finish 5-11, and 4-12 next year. They just have that big of a variance as to what their season could be like. Well, Marcus, I, uh, I really appreciate your time. For everybody listening, check out Marcus's work at Bleacher Report, FanRack Sports, and soon to be fan-sided. We look forward to uh, watching how the NFC East unfolds. And again, I appreciate you giving us a couple of minutes. Yep, no problem. Thank you. Thank you. So we appreciate Marcus's thoughts on the NFC East. And now we're going to stay in the same conference, but switch divisions. And we're going to talk a little bit about the San Francisco 49ers, one of the more interesting rebuilds going on in the league. And to talk San Francisco, we're going to bring in Peter Panassi, fan-sided editor of Niner Noise. And Peter, uh, I want to thank you for your time. How are you? You're pretty good, Matt. How are things? Good, good. You know, I want to jump right in. There's, there's no doubt that the 49ers have a long way to go to get back to even where they were under the Jim Harbaugh era. But it seems as though the defense has some real potential, adding to it, of course, in the draft. What is your thought on the defense headed into training camp? Well, the front seven's looking really, really solid. Uh, of course, they're going to be going into a new alignment, a 4-3 defense, which is probably something they should have done a few years ago. Um, the defensive line with players like DeForest, Buckner, Stallman, Thomas, you figure that's going to be very, very strong. And then the linebacker group, when you have uh, Navarro Bowman, Reuben Foster, and then you know back, backing up both those guys, Malcolm Smith, a guy who was signed to a pretty big deal, there's a little bit of depth there, which is nice to see. So the front seven is going to be looking pretty solid. Um, I do have some question marks in the secondary. Um, both safeties, Eric Reed. And Jimmy Ward, um, you know, you do fine with those guys, but they do have a bit of an injury history. Cornerback depth behind Rashard Robinson is a little questionable, but I think overall you can see the 49ers defense take a pretty big leap from where they were last year, which is pretty awful to say the least. You know, they bring in a new head coach, and this time I think the 49ers got it right. Third coach in three years, but Kyle Shanahan comes in. He's a very offensive-minded guy, of course, was the coordinator for the Falcons last year in their run to the Super Bowl. Just looking at the roster, San Francisco appears to be further behind on its rebuild offensively than it is defensively. You know, last year, you'll look at the statistics. Carlos Hyde, a good running back, a good young running back, but the receivers, just a lot to be desired there. You know, what are your thoughts going into 2017 offensively with a new quarterback, of course, a new system under Shanahan, and not a whole lot of proven talent uh, in most of the spots. Well, Shanahan's offense, it's very complex. It's considered one of the most complex offenses in the NFL. So you look at a lot of the 49ers' free agent moves. 
on the offensive side of the ball, guys like Logan Paulson, tight end, um, Pierre Garcon, Aldrick Robinson, those guys for sure, they, um, they understand Shanahan's system. Uh, so they're going to be the mentors to some of the up-and-coming hopefuls, guys like wide receiver Trent Taylor, um, tight end George Kittle. You know, try to get those guys to be impacting players in the next few years. But yeah, go-to guys, your playmakers, your skill positions. But one of the bigger concerns that I have for this entire unit is actually the offensive line. There's a uh, you know a couple of changes made, most notably Jeremy Zuda coming over from the uh, Ravens to probably start at center. But other than that, it's probably going to be the same offensive line as it was last year. And uh, 49ers weren't particularly good in pass protection or run blocking. So that's something to kind of keep an eye out to see if it kind of all falls apart right at the line of scrimmage. You know, you bring up a a good point about last year was rough up up at the line of scrimmage. And I think, you know, we saw that reflected in the way the quarterbacks played, you know, Colin Kaepernick, Blaine Gabbert. But, you know, I want to talk just briefly about Kaepernick. What are your thoughts in terms of pure football talent on him? And do you think the the 49ers should have kept him over bringing in Hoyer and Matt Barkley? Uh, You know, the one thing that really, really made Kaepernick special back in his heyday, 2012, 2013, was the fact that, you know, the league was really having success with, uh, you know, read option plays, and, and you don't see that so much anymore. And what the 49ers did very well back then was to cover up his shortcomings. He's not much of a pocket passer, um, you know, kind of a, a, a one-read quarterback. I know that's a lot of, a lot of people have said about him. Uh, the the skills that he does possess certainly makes him an intriguing option. But I think for the 49ers, whether or not they wanted to bring him back, I mean, you look at the type of quarterbacks Kyle Shanahan has preferred, he likes a lot more of his pocket passers. You know, Matt Ryan's been one. Uh, Brian Hoyer, I mean, offers you nothing on the ground in terms of his, of his legs, but a guy who can effectively deliver the ball from the pocket. And that fits more into Shanahan's offense than I think what Colin Kaepernick has to offer so you know i mean an intriguing weapon at this point in his career but the other part about it with kaepernick you kind of know who he is i mean there isn't really going to be anything new to his game that's going to surprise you and i think that's part of the reason why he's unsigned i'm sure there's many more though yeah the last couple of years it's just been ugly for the 49ers both off and on the field in a lot of ways but John Lynch comes in, general manager. A lot of people were surprised that he got the job, but he's been very active in changing the culture this offseason. It seems like he's done a really nice job to this point. What, in your opinion, has been his most important move thus far? Uh, Well, the moves I think that he recognized, uh, defensively, you have to think about what he knows as a player and realizing, you know, the 49ers had all sorts of problems last year, but their defense was probably the worst. I mean, franchise record in many ways and not in the right ways. And so, you know, you think about what he did in round one of the drafts, trading from number two to number three, still getting Solomon Thomas, landing extra picks in the process. Uh, that was a genius move. I mean, there's, there's nothing more that needs to be said about that. But one of the things that I really like about John Lynch is he's everything Trent Baalke wasn't. You know, John Lynch is very upfront with the media. He's he's vocal, uh, he's visible, and uh, Trent Baalke wasn't that. And I mean, very you know, you, you couldn't talk to Trent Baalke very much about any of the team moves or decisions that he made. And it seems that uh, you know, the the, the type of 
I guess, culture that 49ers and their fans kind of want to have now going forward. John Lynch is exemplifying that, and it's, a, it's, it's refreshing for a lot of fans to see that now as opposed to what's been going on over the past few years. You know, I, I think Lynch has done a really nice job to this point, and, and that all being said, I think the 49ers, certainly the arrow's pointing out, but it, it would be very surprising. If they- How do you make a radio ad for an 8K TV that conveys the feeling of 33 million pixels with over a billion shades of color hitting your eyeballs? This is the best we can do. Samsung Neo QLED 8K, unreasonably good. They were to reach the playoffs this year, both because the NFC is very strong and, look, you know, the Niners, there's a long way to go, and it's probably going to take a couple seasons to get this rebuild, you know, where they want it. But there's still a lot of reasons to to feel uh, excited, to expect some significant improvement out in the Bay Area. What are your expectations of the team this season? Well, as far as wins and losses are concerned, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think anybody who's hoping for a, for a playoff push here by San Francisco is uh, reaching a little too far. I mean, if you're looking at, at four wins, even just four wins, you're doubling last year's win total. Um, five or six, that would be pretty solid. Anything above that would be exemplary. Uh, 49ers schedule isn't particularly easy. Um, the back end, there's a little bit, you know, of a, of a, of a break there, some winnable games, but it's still going to be a tough schedule. And look, I mean, there's new schemes on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball. Um, lots of fresh faces. I think somewhere, I, I forget where I read it, but, uh, the 49ers have already turned over 50% of their ro- roster or more from, I think, February. So, you know, this whole group is going to have to gel quite a lot. And there is a lot of work to be done. And I don't think that, you know, 49er fans should get, overly hopeful for a playoff push probably until 2018 at the earliest peter we really uh, appreciate your time thoughts on the 49ers of course uh peter again fan-sided niner noise editor and uh we really appreciate a few minutes uh taking the time here on stacking the box hey not a problem matt and peter brings up some good points on the 49ers i i think the 49ers have a real shot to make some strides this year and, and you know again you know, Peter mentioned probably no more than six wins this year. I think four would be a vast improvement. The, the 49ers, they were every bit as bad as the Browns last season. And so any kind of tangible improvement under Kyle Shanahan, who is a very bright mind, but is a first-time head coach, I think is really you know a, a good building block for San Francisco. And I don't think San Francisco would be too upset if it got a top-five pick this year maybe find that quarterback, maybe not even have to go too far you know, in the draft, whether it be a Sam Darnold or a Josh Rosen, both those guys right out of California. So the 49ers, the rebuild is going to take a little bit of time, but it's not a horrible situation. And speaking of a Bay Area team that has done its rebuild, we move now to Josh Hill, NFL editor for Fansided. And last week, it was about Adrian Peterson and how he's not going to do all that much for the Saints. And this week, we're moving over to the AFC. And Josh, I'll let you have the floor. What is your dying on this hill take this week? It's that the Oakland Raiders are not going to make the playoffs. And I'm sorry, Oakland fans, if that upsets you. I know that you guys are really passionate for the two years you have your team left. And before you move to Las Vegas, I don't think that they're going to be two good years. It was great last year that they got to the playoffs. Derek Carr is a great quarterback. Khalil Mack is an all-pro linebacker. He's great. But that defense, it's Mack and it's 10 other bodies. And that really, really scares me especially considering Derek Carr might have a year where he falls off because he's coming off an injury. 
We don't know how he's going to look. We don't know how Marshawn Lynch is going to last over the course of an entire season. And then you have that, the questions on defense. So I'm not sold on the Raiders. I think the Raiders' offense should be very good. I mean, the offensive mm. line, look, you've got big-time guys, especially on the interior with Clutch Assembly, Rodney Hudson, Gabe Jackson. Jackson, of course, just getting that big five-year extension. And I think general manager Reggie McKenzie has done a really nice job in terms of building from the draft. Of course, Carr coming in, second-round mm-hmm. pick, and they give him that five-year, $125 million extension and a well-deserved one. But I agree with you with the defense. I think on Twitter I described the Raiders defensively as Khalil Mack and 10 road cones. And, (laughs) you know, look, some Raiders fans got annoyed with me. I like Carl Joseph as a player. I think he's a nice pick. He's a good safety. I think he's somebody who develops. But right now you're asking an awful lot of him to be the best player in that secondary. Now, Garon Connolly's coming in out of the draft. He's somebody who, again, talented. But how does he translate? You know, this is a rookie coming in. He could be the next – Richard Sherman. He could also be the next DJ Hayden. And we just simply don't know yet. I like that the Raiders tried to address it. Uh, Obi Melifanu, also mm-hmm. second-round pick out of UConn. A lot of people thought the Raiders got nice value there. I would agree. But ultimately, you, know, you have to be concerned when Mack was the defensive player of the year last season, had 11 sacks, and the Raiders still managed to finish dead last in the league with 25 sacks, and they really didn't do much to address that front seven. And another thing that they didn't do is address the fact that they gave up an average of 6.1 yards per play last year, which is worst in the NFL. And that's worse than New Orleans, who had an awful defense. That's worse than the Colts. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were barely a football team last year. So that, I think, you know, looking at the defense, that's what really, really scares me and throws me off on Oakland. The offense, too. Marshawn Lynch is somebody that, um, you know, we kind of talked about him a little bit last week with Adrian Peterson. How long is he going to last? Like he, you know, was out of football last year, didn't play at all. Now he's coming back and we're expecting him to what? All of a sudden carry this offense the way he was beast mode in Seattle? I I just don't see it. I see maybe him coming on strong. I don't know how he finishes the season. Where does he run out of gas on that schedule? Right. And, you know, with Lynch, he's 31 years old. Last year, as you mentioned, he was retired. He didn't Mm -hmm. play. The year before that, he played seven games with the Seahawks. And he only rushed for 3.8 yards per attempt. He had three touchdowns. Now, the, the four years prior to that, Lynch was arguably a top three running back in the league. Each year had at least 1,200 yards, had double-digit touchdowns in each of those seasons. But I just wonder with Lynch, as you point out, you know, I think he'll start out well. It's good that it's a warm-weather team. I think that helps. He's got a good offensive line in front of him. In fact, a very good offensive line. But does the body hold up for 16 games? This isn't a guy who's avoided hits in his NFL career. He's, he's beast mode. He's taken that pounding throughout his career. And while he's dished out plenty of it, you got to wonder how much tread is on those tires. And look, Derek Carr is an excellent young quarterback. I think he's right around the top 10. And some people take that as a slight. It's certainly not meant that way. I really think he's a good up-and-coming player. But Carr's had his struggles, as have the Raiders, against better teams. Over the past two years, the Raiders are 2-10 and against teams that made the playoffs later on that season. And the only quarterback they've beaten in that stretch, both games, Brock Osweiler. So that is deeply concerning. It's also concerning that in the division, he has never thrown for 300 yards against either Denver or Kansas City. And the only time he he threw over even 250, it took him 48 attempts and a loss to the Chiefs. So if, if the Raiders aren't better against Denver and Kansas City, they're going to struggle to even win that division. And I think that's a step before some people have talked, are they the biggest threat to the Patriots? 
they're not even right now a team that you'd say, well, hey, they're certainly going to win that division. Mm -hmm. That is a very tough division, and they've not played well in it over the last couple of years. No, and you talk about needing to beat Denver and Kansas City and, you know, Los Angeles, the Chargers, or whatever. But the first half of their schedule, I can really see where people are like, oh, yeah, the Raiders, they might get off to a strong start because they get, you know, Tennessee, the Jets, the Raiders, and then the, or the Redskins, and then the Broncos. It's the last half of that schedule that really concerns me. I think maybe we're looking at a situation here where the Vikings last year started out really strong, and then something happened in the middle of the year where they fell off. Oakland, I think it's easier to pinpoint what will happen. It's they're going to run into better teams. You know, in the middle of November, they get New England. Then they get Denver, the Giants, the Chiefs, the Cowboys, the Eagles. And then they finish with the Chargers. And I would even go back to an October 29th game against the Bills. That's in Buffalo. Say what you will about Buffalo. That's a cross-country game. That might be a cold-weather game, too, for Oakland. Uh, that concerns me. And I think that could be the start of where the schedule kind of falls off. And don't discount that week one game against Tennessee. Last year, Oakland should have lost the first week of the season. But Gamblin' Jack goes for two, all of a sudden they win, and that kind of starts that off. And if you look back at their schedule last year, a lot of those games, like the game against Tampa Bay, which they should have lost in overtime, I'm not going to be biased about this, but they should have lost. Janikowski misses all those field goals. They need to go to overtime. They should lose that game. I think this year we're going to see the luck run out on the second half of that schedule, the way it didn't really last year. Well, you, know, you point out, like, the Raiders played a lot of close games last season. You know, in, in their schedule, they had five games that were decided by a field goal or less, and they won all five of them. And typically speaking in the NFL, even if you're a good team, you know, maybe you go three and two. Maybe at absolute best you go four and one, but you're not usually going to sweep those kinds of games. Mm -hmm. Things tend to even out. And, one, and by the way, one of those games that wasn't even included in that because they won by six was against your Buccaneers. Mm -hmm. And that's a game where they committed, I believe, it was 24 penalties. It was an NFL record. Aggressive. So the, the big question I have with the Raiders is offensively, I believe they'll score points. So I think mm -hmm. they'll be maybe even in the top five offensively. But as you point out, defensively, the mm -hmm. Raiders have real issues. Mack is the one player, and he's a great player. But you have to plan it around him. You don't have to worry about anybody else. Bruce Irvin, look, he's a nice player. He's never had more than eight sacks in a season. Okay, he's, he's fine, but as an offensive coordinator, you're not going into a game terrified of what Bruce Irvin's going to do. No. Sean Smith came over as a big-ticket addition, four years, $40 million. He struggled mightily last year. In Kansas City, Smith, a big-bodied corner, he was able to, to play a press-man scheme, and it was great for him. But last year, playing Ken Norton Jr.'s cover three – He's not allowed to press. He's got to drop back. It's more about speed and hips, and it didn't work for him. And you just wonder, same defense, how does it work for him this year? But looking at the schedule, I look at the games against Kansas City because I think the Chiefs are probably the team in the West, of course the defending champions of it, that are going to give the Raiders their biggest run for their money. The Raiders get the Chiefs on Thursday night in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Under Jack Del Rio, the Raiders are yet to beat the Chiefs throwing four. If they can't beat the Chiefs in that game, you have to really wonder when is it going to happen. Because when the two teams have a rematch, it's going to be in December in Kansas City. Derek Carr has not been good in his career in cold weather games. Now, last year, it's got to be mentioned, he was playing with what eventually came out as a broken thumb. But last year, December 8th, he played an arrowhead and went 17-41 for 117 yards. He averaged 2.85 yards per attempt. His QBR was 7.6. 
that's not good. And I certainly, you know, I was actually at that game. Carr did not have many options. The Chiefs were blanketing his receivers down the field. But if you're going to be considered an MVP-type player, you got to do better than that. And while the thumb was certainly a factor, he was good in the other four games that he played with that thumb. So, and, and all those games were in warm-weather venues. Three of them were in Oakland, one of which was in San Diego. So you have to wonder, in December this year, Kansas City, Philadelphia, can the Raiders get out of there with wins? Because if they can't, well, it might be tough down the stretch for Oakland to make that push that you typically have to going into the postseason. And another thing to look at, too, with that defense is discipline. You know, we, we mentioned it in the Buccaneers game last year that they had, like, the most penalties by a single team, and they still managed to win on a lot of luck. But they gave up 36 first downs last year from penalties on defense. Only the Jaguars, the Rams, and the Dolphins were worse than that. That's not really company that you want to keep. And then penalty yards overall, they gave up over 1,000 yards in penalties. That was third worst in the NFL. Were, and only the Colts and the Titans were worse than that. And the Colts and the Titans, not really known for their defense. And that AFC South is not really company that you want to keep. So the other, that, that's something else that I need to wonder, too, because you mentioned like the defense is really basically coming back the same it was last year. Are they going to be a more disciplined unit? Because that could be a wild card here that we're not looking at, especially if they are, again, in a lot of these close games like they were last year. All it takes is a bad penalty at the wrong time, and all of a sudden those wins turn into losses. So that's, that's something that I'm going to be paying attention to big time. But now let's move into uh, the closing thought of the show, and really let's talk about the three players who are on the franchise tag right now. The deadline normally is July 15th. It was moved back this year to the 17th. So we got Le'Veon Bell, Kirk Cousins, and Trumaine Johnson. And really all three situations are pretty different. Cousins and Johnson have both been tagged now for the second time, which means it's at 120% of their salaries from last year, so a little bit more expensive. Both have already signed their tenders, so they're not going to be holding out. They're willing to play this one year, play it out, and then in all likelihood go to free agency. Le'Veon Bell has not signed his tender, which means technically he's not under team control. He can't go anywhere else, but he may not go to camp, and if he doesn't, he, may, he would not be subject to being fined. So that's where the three guys stand. But let's break it down one by one. Trumaine Johnson, 27 years old, good, solid, young corner for the Los Angeles Rams, and he is not going to get tagged. The bottom line is the Rams have been stringing this out, trying to eat up some of his prime years. They've done it to a degree, but he's very likely to walk after this season. And he's not an elite number one type corner. He's never going to be a Richard Sherman or a Patrick Peterson or Marcus Peters or Chris Harris or guys of those elk or of that elk, excuse me. But he's a very good player and he's a mid-tier number one corner. Last year, according to Pro Football Focus, he ranked 14th in yards allowed per coverage snap. That's solid. That's, in fact, better than solid. That's very good. That's a number that teams would pay top dollar for. Johnson is a bigger corner. He can run a little bit. And he's somebody that, look, if he gets into free agency, he's going to have four or five, six teams knocking on his door. Something you probably do know. Progressive can not only offer you a great price when you bundle home and auto, they offer you round-the-clock protection. Something you probably don't know? A driveway basketball hoop, including the base, weighs around 400 pounds. Something you probably do know? There's a windstorm coming. Something you probably don't know? A basketball hoop tipping over can poke a hole in a car roof like a can opener. 
Bundle your home and auto with Progressive and get more than a great price. Get round-the-clock protection, something you know for the things you don't know. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Trying to lock up his services, especially if he has a really good campaign for Los Angeles this year. I'm a little bit surprised the Rams haven't been more aggressive in keeping him. You have to think at some point here, General Manager Les Snead's going to get the ball rolling on making sure that this young defensive core doesn't go anywhere. They already lost Janoris Jenkins last year to the Giants. Jenkins went over there, had a really nice season. Most people assumed with Jenkins leaving that Johnson would stay. And while he stayed on the tag, he has not been kept long-term. And at this point, it's very hard to see him staying long-term. You can tag a player a third time. But it's not going to happen. He would get a quarterback tag, which would mean he'd be making in excess of $25 million. And no corner is getting paid $25 million. So Johnson will hit the market. And if the Rams want to keep him, they're going to have to pony up and simply outbid everybody else. And that's, that's a tough spot. Typically, when players get to that point, they're ready to move on. So Trumaine Johnson, likely in his last year with the Rams. Kirk Cousins is a totally different situation. He's 28 years old, right smack dab in the prime of his career, and he's due $24 million this season. One of the largest cap hits in the NFL, but the Redskins can take it on. But you have to wonder now, with a week to go before the deadline, are the Redskins going to be able to lower that cap number by signing him to a long-term extension? It's a very much a 50-50 proposition. Now, again, he's already signed the tender, so he's willing to play out this season. And if the Redskins are willing to play it out, they have the option of tagging him next year, but it would cost $34.5 million. As much as teams value quarterbacks in the league, nobody's paying Kirk Cousins or any quarterback, perhaps outside of Tom Brady, $34.5 million for one year. So if he doesn't sign a long-term deal in the next week, just like all the other franchise tag players, he, he is not allowed to sign another contract until after the season. So he would play out $24 million, not a bad chunk of change for 16 games, and then he would move forward. At this juncture, Cousins has all the leverage because if the Redskins want to keep him, he's going to say, okay, I'm making $24 million this year. Transition tag next year would be around $28 million. So the first two years of my deal have to be two years, $52 million. I've at least got to get that guaranteed. My guess is a long-term deal for Cousins, it would probably look pretty similar to Derek Carr. And the Redskins, by their actions, have been pretty steadfast in not believing that Kirk Cousins is worth that much. And we talked to Marcus Mosier earlier in the program, and he said he would let Cousins walk, that he doesn't believe that Cousins is the kind of guy who can win a Super Bowl with. And frankly, I think the jury's still out on that. You know, he's a young guy, turns 29 in August. But the last two years, the two years he started full seasons, he started out in 2015 by throwing 4,100 yards, 29 touchdowns. Last year... Went to 4,900 yards, stayed around the same touchdown rate, 25 touchdowns, and only 30, excuse me, only 23 interceptions over the last two years. So Cousins has been one of the better quarterbacks in the league. You could argue whether or not that's been more of the system, more of the talent around him. Of course, Jordan Reed, Pierre Garçon, Deshaun Jackson, so on and so forth. But Cousins, if he doesn't sign the tag, and again, I think it's about a 50-50. If I had to guess one way or the other, I don't think he'll sign. I think Washington's willing to play it out. And maybe they even do throw a transition tag on him and trade him to the 49ers next year and and get something back and move on. You know, there's been some talk that they really like Nate Sudfeld 
that's a dangerous game to be playing if you're the Redskins and nothing against Nate Sudfeld, but let's be honest, I don't think there's a ton of hope there that he's going to become what Cousins is unless you're really just having wishful thinking. If he hits free agency next season, he'll be 29 years old, he will be the most sought-after quarterback in free agency since Peyton Manning. And it sounds crazy to put Kirk Cousins in that same conversation. And, of course, talent-wise, he's not. But when you're talking about a proven, established quarterback at 29 years old in the NFL today, you are going to see a bidding war like none other. He will be, and Marcus said this earlier, and I agree, he will be the highest-paid quarterback in the NFL. He may not exceed the $87 million in guarantees that Andrew Luck got, but he will easily, with the cap likely to rise again next year, be looking at an overall value deal somewhere in the neighborhood of $130 to $140 million. Is he worth that money? If you're a team that maybe feels you're a quarterback away from the Super Bowl, perhaps. If you're, if you're a team that wins four games, you're the Jets, let's say. No, probably not, because I don't think Kirk Cousins is going to be the kind of guy who gets you over that threshold. But he's a very good player at a position that is paid a premium, and he'll get that premium. And, and so finally, the last player I want to talk about is the youngest guy who's on the tag, Le'Veon Bell, 25 years old. He, when he gets his long-term deal, is going to get a boatload of money. He'll probably probably be the highest paid running back in the history of the NFL. And right now, there's an easy argument for him to get that money immediately. He is the best all-around back in the game along with David Johnson. He plays the game as a receiver when he's out in, in, in pass-catching situations. Yes, he's had some issues in terms of being suspended, blew out the knee two years ago, but he's come back. He's been stronger than ever. And last year, Le'Veon Bell had the best year of his career. And even though he's a running back, 25 years old, you could argue he's at least got three, four good years left. And if you're the Steelers, that's about your window with Ben Roethlisberger at best. So I think you've got to keep that together. Martavis Bryant's a free agent after this year. They might let him walk, especially with the depth chart behind him and, of course, Antonio Brown ahead of him. I think you do whatever you can if you're Pittsburgh to keep that combo of Bell, Big Ben, and Brown together. That is a winning combination if you have any kind of defense. And the Steelers right now certainly at least have a passable defense, making them the favorite in the AFC North. If he plays on the tag this year, and again, he's the one guy who's not signed the tender, he's due $12.1 million, which is a large hit, but the Steelers can absorb it. If he has to play on it next year, it's $14.5 million. That's a little bit much. But again, you have to look at that and say, okay, if you're Bell's representation, you at least want the first two years of the contract to be worth $26.6 million, the combo of this year's tag and what next year's would be. Now, a lot of teams, and Pittsburgh right up there among them, not going to want to pay a running back into the years where they are 30, 31, even 29. And the Steelers have always been willing to let guys walk, whether you want to go back to the days of Plaxico Burris, right up to Mike Wallace, so on and so forth. Pittsburgh has always believed in drafting, developing, keeping a certain core and going from there. And you have to wonder, is Bell part of that core? Again, there have been some off-field issues. He has been hurt. But when he's healthy and when he's right, there is not a more explosive player out of the backfield than Le'Veon Bell. He is a mismatched nightmare. I think the Steelers ultimately get this done. 
I think it's one of these contracts that may be on the surface. It's six years and you know, whatever the, the average value may be, maybe six years, $75 million. But I think the guarantees will run out after the first three years or so, and he'll be cuttable right around he's 28 years old, 29. And that gives Bell a lot of money, and it gives the Steelers a lot of protection. So I think it's the perfect marriage for both player and team. Bell is the most likely to get his contract done. Cousins, again, coin flip situation. I lean more toward that he doesn't sign a long-term deal. And Trumaine Johnson, it would be stunning if he's retained by the Rams. I think it's a one-done one for Trumaine Johnson. He'll hit the free agent market. He'll cash in. And so that is all we have for you this week on Stacking the Box. I am your host, Matt Verderam. Please check out all of my work and the work of the NFL writers here at fansided.com. Really terrific stuff each and every day, not only in the NFL, but around our network. And again, I just want to thank Josh Hill, Peter Panacey, Mark Smosher for coming on, giving us a few minutes. Really good insight. And I'd like to ask anybody who's listening, please subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Give it a rating. Give it a comment. Uh, you know, if you comment, I'd be happy to read it uh, on the air as long as it's not profane, which you know it could be. Um, but in any event, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen. Hopefully we've helped to bridge the gap uh, that is the NFL offseason as we inch closer to training camp, only a few weeks away, and then we'll start talking about stuff that's happening in real time. But uh, we look forward to it, and we thank you for your, for your viewership. This has been Stacking the Box, and enjoy the rest of your week. Hi, I'm Flo from Progressive. You know me, I'm a huge football fan, but it can be stressful for us super fans. So Progressive is going to help take your mind off your team for a moment. Instead of thinking about how your team threw the wrong ball on the wrong net, just think about how Home Court Explorer lets you easily compare our direct rates with multiple companies. Well, hope this distraction about Progressive's Home Court Explorer was helpful. It sure helped me from stressing about my team for a bit. Anyway, go sports! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.